When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I mean, honestly, I just feel so lonely among these massive egos. <laughs> What's an ego, Paddy? <laughs> <laughs> Hello everyone, this is Colin Schindler, along with John Holmes and Patrick Barclay, welcoming you back to another edition of Football Ruined My Life. And this week is special, because this is an end-of-year edition devoted entirely to what I call readers' letters, and what my partner Catherine calls listeners' emails, which I don't think sounds as euphonious, although of course it's a lot more accurate. Anyway, this episode is devoted to what you tell us in response to all those anguished appeals I issue every week. And the tone of them, I have to say, is encouragingly positive. There is absolutely no abuse at all, I am thrilled to say. So this particular seasonal podcast is like a football equivalent of the Christmas showing on television of Frank Capra's epic masterpiece, It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> It'll leave you all in tears at the end of it. Paddy, what have you been thinking about the letters that we, well, the emails that we've been receiving? the tone of them and the fact that they all seem to be life-enhancing. I don't know about tears. I'm just worried about people throwing up at the schmaltz of it all. My goodness. It's was... Christmas. All Give right. us a break. Well, Christmas is just over. I hope everybody, by the way, had a nice one. But I think generally, as you rightly say, they've all been generous-spirited and I think they're wonderful to read. In fact, you know, just about every email, I feel like saying this person should be on the panel, you know. There's one, a guy called Vaughn Webb. Hello, Vaughn. Vaughn and I have something in common in that we're both season ticket holders at Craven Cottage. Vaughn comes up with some ideas for the future, including referees. He mentions Roger Kirkpatrick, Gordon Hill and Clive Thomas, and indeed the one-hit wonder Ray Tinkler. Who has never been back up the M1 ever since. No, Leeds versus West Bromwich, and there was a pitch invasion, I think, almost a riot. He also mentions the relative leniency, and he cites Chelsea v Leeds FA Cup final replay, which was more of a sort of combat, cage fighting with a ball. Actually, it was a great game as well. But uh, he also talks about football nomads. Frank Large, he talks about, who played briefly for Fulham. Top man, played for Leicester, helped us beat Manchester City 4-3 in the Cup a game that must be etched into Colin's memory. It's the only time in that little 60s batch of matches we played where you did win, I have to he say. He terrified George Heslop, who Which was a hard to nervous, do. quivering wreck at the in end fact, of his, that game. In fact, his hair fell out because of it. His fourth idea, and I'll come to the third in a minute, is high-scoring matches. He says, I believe Leicester took part in a 5-5. John, is that true? 1949, on their way to Wembley. Mm. They scored in the very last minute of injury time. Yep. Jack Lee with a header from a corner taken by Mal Griffiths. Uh, and now the fourth of his ideas is dramatic rise and fall of league clubs. 
And he mentions Northampton, who rose from Division 4 to Division 1 between 1961 and 65. Pretty spectacular. And yeah. I was at boarding school in Northamptonshire at that point, mm-hmm. and I did get to see them. They played on the county ground. It was a three-sided ground. I think Dave Bowen was the manager. They came up from the fourth to the first division. And then to complete the sort of symmetry of the whole thing, went back down again. They were the grand old Duke of York of football at that point. Vaughan doesn't mention, surprisingly in that context, Swansea City at the time of John Toshak, where they rose through their divisions and had a very attractive team, including a couple of Yugoslavs, Hadzibedzic and somebody else. It was a good footballing side that came up, did well at first before plummeting. Alan Curtis and Robbie James are the ones I particularly remember. But anyway, these are some of the subjects that Vaughan raises. Thanks, Vaughan, because these ones will go before the committee, otherwise known as Colin Schindler, and be approved or or not. My dictatorship is famous throughout the land. John, what about you? Well, someone accused me of telling apocryphal stories, which led to a discussion of which our esteemed producer, Paul Kobach, was part with the Bishop of Leicester. Now, these things do happen, you know, in the way of going to football. And the Apocrypha is apparently a book of the Bible, which is not generally included. It's sort of a book that could be in the Bible, but they've not included because actually it was mostly deemed to be a load of old tosh. (laughs) You're meant to pull me up if I'm telling apocryphal stories, but there you are. One thing that I need to clarify, there has been some discussion from one or two sources There's a quick one from a Hartlepool United supporter who says it wasn't Clough who got them up. It was Gus McLean. But he does, in fact, acknowledge that it was Clough that prepared the way. And I'm happy to put that right. That's a mistake on my part. I'd said that Arthur Rowley was the record goal scorer at Leicester. Of course, he's not. Arthur Chandler is the record goal scorer at Leicester. He was, in fact, the record scorer for the whole league, Arthur Rowley, and the record scorer at Shrewsbury. So I'm happy to put that right. But to go into the big one, which is about Espanyol and their relationship with the far right, Franco and so on. And in this respect, I consulted my Espanyol expert, a friend of mine living in Mexico called James Begg. This is what James tells me about Espanyol. There's always some confusion with Espanyol. They started off as an alternative to foreign-led FC Barcelona. A group of local university students wanted to play football and started Espanyol, allowing Catalan or Spanish players into the game. Hence the name, nothing to do with Spanish as opposed to Catalan. In the 20s, Barca started to identify with the conservative Catalan movement, not separatist then. And in contrast, a few right-wing elements began to support Espanyol. In fact, the first hints of hooliganism appeared in the 1923 derby, which had to be postponed due to fights in the stand. It was a pretty turbulent time in Barcelona back then, with shootings in the street. The civil war affected both clubs equally, and there were definitely no favouritisms from Franco. If anything, Real Madrid is considered to be Franco's team. During Franco's rule, Barca consolidated the narrative of being Mascayan club more than a club, drawing in people with anti-regime and pro-Catalan sentiment. They still did pretty well on the pitch, though, while Espanyol's last trophy dated back to the Cup in 1940. 
Had Espanyol been favoured in any way, they might at least have got a league title out of it. The fact is, Barca have done a good job at portraying themselves as the club of Catalonia, whereas Espanyol haven't done themselves any favours by allowing right-wing radicals into the club, notably the fascist ultras in the late 1980s. The reality, though, is that both clubs represent Catalan football and society. Espanyol tries to steer away from politics, something that Barca embraces. Both clubs draw their support from the same social background, middle-class conservative bourgeois Catalan and working-class immigrant families who went to Catalonia in the 1960s. Despite its name and bitter rivalry with Barca, Espanyol are a very Catalan club who proudly wear the senyera on their shirt. They speak both Catalan and Spanish in the stands and have one of the best youth systems in Catalonia and Spain. John, what occurs to me is the implication is that the politics have become much more visible recently. And so I'm asking you, when Gary went to Barcelona in the late 1980s, Gary's not afraid to make a political point in his life, as we know. So was he aware of the nature of the political surroundings? I think my impression about Espanol was probably formed because I remember many occasions going out for dinner with him and the restaurant owner would proudly come and from his top pocket pull out a card saying, I've been a member since when. And what he was trying to say to us was, I'm a Catalan, I'm a proud Catalan, I'm not a Franco man. Mm. So I think that was a stance probably that Barca were happy to portray themselves as the pure representatives of Catalonia and the Espanol were not. I'm moving the discussion on even wider because it's interesting we're already talking about football outside our country and my star letter of the, of the week is from Ty Popic, who lives in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm. And he writes, Hello, gentlemen. Yes, it's true. I am an American through no fault of my own. An American and an avid listener and a great admirer of your programme. I am 43, young, it seems to me, and have been absolutely crazy about your football for 25 years. It is unfortunate when you love something that's also loved by morons. Ah, now we're getting into it. Colin, I listened to you talk about how your passion and attention to the game has diminished over the years, and I'm sure that's got something to do with everything that goes on around the game and not so much the game itself. He's right on that. The hype, the nonsense, and the bad behaviour. The hate that consumes an American when he sees someone wearing a different coloured shirt is immediate and red hot. We absolutely started the you suck culture, and we have exported it around the world, unfortunately. Here in the US, there is no aspiration towards gentlemanly or dignified behaviour among fans, and that can now be found everywhere in the West. The game of football is a beautiful thing. Some might say the same about other sports. They're here for our enjoyment, and big business and tribalism is ruining it for us good apples. Keep up the great work, gentlemen. Sincerely, AAA, anonymous American fan in Atlanta, who then signs his name. Anyway, I just thought that was a smashing letter. It certainly was fabulous stuff. He, he introduced, Ty introduced himself by calling us gentlemen. Yep. Jeff Coley begins with, hi, other old blokes, <laughs> which is fair enough, because he does put what we journalists used to call a dog's cock on the end, which is an exclamation mark. Oh. Not a smiley, by the way, to denote that it's a joke. Anyway, he likes the podcast as well. 
And he mentions something that we'll, and, and I'm sure everybody, a lot of people listening will be familiar with, that we can roll off teams from our youth, but we can't remember the team last Saturday. Anyway, he tells a lovely story about a Scottish footballer. I lived a five-minute walk from the Hendon Hall Hotel, which I think was where England trained for yes, the World Cup. Yes, it was. And spent many a happy hour waiting for England players or cup finalists hoping for an autograph. My most treasured signing was a bit unfortunate. I asked Frank Haffey to sign his full-page, full-colour picture in the then-current Charlie Buchan magazine, the Football Monthly, and Frank duly signed. Best wishes, Frank Haffey, Celtic FC, tonic in sport. And then let in that hatful at Wembley. He was, of course... The Scotland goalkeeper when we lost well, he nine. should have had less tonic in his gin. <laughs> yeah. Or more tonic in his gin. <laughs> anyway, he says, happy days. May you all keep fit and well. And the same to you, Jeff. Thank you. I'm moving into a more parochial area now. Paul Watts writes, I discovered your excellent podcast whilst on holiday in Wales last week and spent a significant amount of time under my headphones listening to them all, for which my wife was eternally grateful. I'm 64, so a fraction younger than you chaps, but I was into all things football from a very young age and was a regular on the sidelines at Chippenham Town, where I'm still a season ticket holder, alongside my dad and grandfather from the age of three. Swindon Town came into my radar from about 66, 67. My uncle was a lifelong supporter and he started me on the slippery slope of following them too. Character building, I think he called it. The first game I attended was on my ninth birthday against Torquay United. I vividly remember the short train ride, the walk to the ground with the crowds, my first glimpse of the towering floodlights, the programme and rosette cellars, the spine-tingling, chanting, echoing from inside the town end as we walked behind the stands, the climb up the wooden stairs to the entrance, the knot of excitement in my stomach as I peered through the door to see my first glimpse of the pitch, mostly sand being midwinter, the glorious red and white gods as they appeared from the tunnel opposite, the smell of tobacco, the roar of the crowd, I was hooked. I thought that was terrific. He does go on a bit more about Don Rogers. But I wanted to read that out because I think that coincides with everybody's memories of the early going yeah, experience. Yeah. I thought it was beautifully written yeah, and worth everyone listening to that. I've got a gentleman here called, I hope I'm pronouncing your surname correctly, Mick Anier, A-N-N-E-A-R. In connection with goal scorers, we you know we discussed goal scorers, and he just mentions one we didn't remember who made a dramatic impact, and that's Jimmy Bone, who came down from Scotland. Mick says he came from Hibs. I remember Jimmy Bone being with Party Thistle, but I may have got that wrong. Mick rightly recalls he got Norwich promoted to the top division for the first time, and then sadly couldn't find the net as regularly in Division One. I was so glad Mick to be reminded of that. Because there was a Scot who came down and had this instant impact, but was able to sustain it, injury permitting. And that was Andy Gray. Do you remember in his first season in England, just a young man, he won Young Player of the Year and Player of the Year in his debut season after coming down from, oh God, I'm sorry to use bad language, but Dundee United. <laughs> but yeah, Jimmy Bone, yeah, came in like a creature from outer space. It was just superhuman for a season. And thanks to producer Paul Kobrak, I have at least got one thing right, and it was Partick Thistle from which Jimmy Bone came, not Hibbs. By the way, John mentioned things that he's been corrected on. 
don't ask me to do that because you'll be here all day. If I can return to Ty Poppick at one point, hmm. I get the impression that John Holmes is not someone I would want to meet in a dark alley in Leicester. I'm very perceptive. I'm very perceptive. He's a pussycat. I'm the most friendly of guys, and I certainly don't frequent dark alleys in the beautiful spa town of Leicester. I'm afraid it's your basso profundo, John, that seems to produce that kind of response. I mean, I assure Ty that John is really completely harmless unless you're negotiating a contract with him, it might be different. There's something coming up from Peter Milner, who I suspect is a Lancastrian, and he must have been writing, I think, after he heard the one on the derby matches that we did some time ago, and he writes, What? No mention of the Lancashire derby games? Blackpool v Preston, Matthews v Finney, Bolton v Berry, Rochdale v Oldham, even Fleetwood v Morecambe, and, of course, Burnley v Blackburn. In many cases, battle lines have been drawn while City were Ardwick and United were Newton Heath and John Holding had yet to found Liverpool. Fueled from Victorian times by a mixture of family history, geographical proximity, local pride, just look at civic buildings, envy, regularity of fixtures and shared workplaces, one doesn't change sides. My son was born in Preston but has been brought up in the true faith, namely to be and remain a claret. Beating, or at least not losing to Preston, was important. The derby, however, was only with Blackburn, and long may we stay a division above them, a sentiment heartily shared by the Lancashire Constabulary. But what a place to win the title. And as to the usage of the word derby to define rivalry, it was used in a cricket press report of 1894, in which it was stated that Burnley versus Lower House, which is between Burnley and Paddiham, could be said to be a local derby, Keep up the good work, Peter Milner. Good stuff. He's right about the Victorian times. It all starts in Victorian times. And the rivalry is expressed as well in those local cricket leagues where towns two miles apart hated the guts of the other one (laughs) and wanted desperately to win. And I think that just spills over to the football. I think one thing they could all get together on and take pride is the resilience of the Lancashire town clubs. It is incredible, isn't it? you know, after the maximum wage and all these various historical movements, plus the decline of the cotton and all that kind of stuff, the death of Lancashire clubs has been, you know, it was regarded as inevitable. And yet Burnley, Premier League, Blackburn, champions of England. Can I just say two words? Accrington Stanley. Yes, another one. You would have thought that they were dead and buried for all time, but they're back. And I suspect we'll be hailing the return of Berry in the, I hope, not too distant future. Oh, I really hope you're right. But I've got one from Martin Brunschweiler from the Isle of Man. Hello there. I really enjoy your podcast, which covers many interesting aspects of football, which often gets me thinking about other potential subjects. Now, I'm sure you all know about it, but an amazing day in football history was Boxing Day in 1963, when you wonder what was in the air when a staggering 66 goals were scored in the first division. Being a Blackburn Rovers fan, it's a special result for us, especially as the West Ham side we beat starred their golden trio of Bobby Moore, Martin Peters and Jeff Hurst. I can't help thinking, of course, that they never really liked going to Blackburn or indeed out of East London, so it's no great thing. Patrick, your adopted team Fulham stole the headlines with a 10-1 thrashing of Ipswich, who'd been league champions only 18 months previously. Even the second division had its own share of goals, with Manchester City thrashing poor old Scunthorpe 8-1. So John's Leicester side only managed a paltry 
2-0 against Everton, which looks very humdrum by comparison. Mm. I realise this might not constitute enough to fill a whole episode, but I always think it's an amazing piece of football history that needs to be remembered from time to time. I remember at one stage in the 1950s, even into the 1960s, you would have reverse fixtures over the festive period. And it was sometimes two in two days. And what you often found, and far be it from me to cast any aspersions over our heroes of those days, but you sometimes got things like 6-2 for one team one day, and then 5-1 for the other team the next day. It happened that day. It happened that day, Paddy. Burnley beat Manchester United 5-1 or 6-1. That's right. And then for the next match, two days later, they brought George Best in. And the fixture was completely reversed. You're absolutely right. I think that was the moment where George Best, having made his debut in September and having been dropped, comes back for that Burnley game, the return Burnley game, and never gets dropped ever again. Except by himself Um, when he absented himself. It is interesting. I mean, I don't think this is a pat on the back. Well, it is, but it's not really. That's not the point of why I bring this up. But, Paddy, you've read the letters and they are, in tone, unanimously pleasant to read. There is no abuse. Is that an age thing? Do you think that wouldn't be true if we were talking about today's football or our audience was essentially younger than the one that we've got? What do you think? Yeah, I do think so. I've never really experienced a community as sort of warm and constructive as this, so I'm quite disarmed, to be quite honest. But you meet a better class of person on football ruined my life than I used to on... Not in a dark alley in Leicester. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) But I do think it's partly an age thing. And the fact that people of a certain age are not sort of trained to be confrontational by social media. I don't know. Listen, this is just amateur philosophising. So, Well, don't forget, when we first went to matches, crowds were not segregated. I mean, you know, you stood next to the opposition in the stands, didn't you? Yeah. And it wasn't a problem. It becomes a problem in the late 60s. Is that yeah. right, John? That's when it starts. I think to so. The biggest arguments I ever had at football were really with my dad about whether Len Glover was a good player or not. <laughs> Actually, on his deathbed, he did admit to me that I may have been right, and he, and he was wrong. Or at least as far as the admission he got was, I think I may have been a bit unfair on Len Glover, <laughs> but never mind. Right, my final letter is from Jean-Christophe, Jean-Christophe Blanc. Hello to all. I started listening to your podcast only recently, But what a breath of nostalgic fresh air it has been. I am French, born in the early 60s, lived in the UK for most of my adult life and have witnessed the structural monetization of football first introduced by the Premier League, progressingly chip away at my love for the game to the point of losing interest. Could it be age? Surely not. My first brilliant memories of football are with the Ajax team of the early 70s, but my true and only remaining passion is the history of the World Cup, which I started studying at the age of 14 and still do, albeit now essentially focusing on the first five tournaments. In fact, the recent announcement by FIFA, grrr, of the staging of a World Cup across continents might well be the final straw. In your episode, England 66 versus 70, you mentioned that there was animosity between the British and South American teams since the 1950s. It went much further back. Many tours of English teams in South America in the early 1920s didn't go well, partly due to the different styles of play and refereeing. Mm -hmm. It's fair to say that the animosity took a further step up after the 1966 World Cup, which most South American federations considered at the time to have been outrageously biased 
And by the way, I can prove without a shadow of a doubt that Jeff Hurst's second goal never crossed the line. I'm liking this man more and more with every minute well, that yeah. passes. Final sentence. The South American frustration, along with a pretty solid lobbying work on the African nations, ultimately led to Havelange's rise to the FIFA's top job in 1974, along with a whole series of unintended consequences. Well, he covers a lot of ground there. But the thing that staggers me is this man who was born French writes so beautifully in English. Yeah. I wish I could do the same in French, and I can't. But thank you, Jean-Christophe. Anybody, any comments on what he says? You know, but this is what I said earlier. I mean, people like Jean-Christophe, I could listen to that kind of stuff all day. Well, we will find some way. We've, I was talking to John about this, that we ought to find some way literally of connecting not just by the emails that we've been reading out today, connecting with our audience, which I'm glad to say is growing slowly but surely. And there are ways in which this might be done. John, do you want to expand on, on the idea you, you were thinking of? I don't know. And uh, this is a either in the formative stage, whether we should do a video edition so that you can see Paddy Barker's hairline, which when we started this series was very impressive and is now diminishing by the week. He's adopted the Pep Guardiola. I don't know whether anyone else has observed this, but the number of managers now, there's now Luke Williamson at Notts County, Enzo Maresca. And Ten Hag. Eric Ten Hag and his assistant both think they're me, you know, yes. going around with our billiard ball haircut. I think with a lot of these, including Pep Guardiola, their baldness is a matter of choice. <laughs> with me, it's a matter of uh, God's gift. I can remember seeing, I was quite astonished that someone who's got a bald head was still playing football. It was a fellow called Eddie Lowe, mm-hmm. who used to play for Fulham. Mm-hmm. And he was bald. Mm-hmm. And I assumed he must be playing in his 50s or 60s. Because mm-hmm. the only bald people I knew were really quite old. They were like my grandfather and people like that. And there was Eddie Lowe, who clearly I thought must be well past retirement age, mm. running around in midfield. You see, some of them had these, there was a lad, Dave Smith, who he managed Dundee later. They got the Coco the Clown, you know, the bald top, but with a wee bit of hair. But there was the comb over. Bobby Charlton had, of course, the comb over. Rough coats as well. But you could do one on bald footballers. Atilio <laughs> Lombardo, I suppose, would... Figure yes. that. I'm happy to host it anytime you like. <laughs> the bald facts will come. We it. might get sponsorship from the hair restorers, <laughs> as used by Wayne Rooney, Shane Warne, and others at that Great, Graham Good. Another yes. program. Players who used to be bald. And George Heslop, <laughs> actually. Now, George Heslop, I gather he's no longer with us, but no, he's he a isn't. bald centre half at Man City, as Colin will know. And he went away one summer for his summer holidays, came back the next season with the most beautiful uh, Franny Lee-style head of blonde hair. I tell you what, Wayne Rooney, but I don't know what he paid for his weave, but it wasn't as good as George Heslop's wig, which was magnificent. Would have fooled anybody. All you needed was one of those and a tube of superglue, and you're made up <laughs> for life. On that note, thank you to John, and thank you to Paddy, and above all, thank you to our wonderful listeners. I have said week in, week out, we want to hear from you. And we do read the letters and we do admire them. So please keep them coming. And we want to make this a proper kind of community of old geezers who still love the game, despite the game's attempts to actually turn us off. Yeah. The first stage of this group will be meeting in a dark alley in Leicester. <laughs> well, thank you, everybody. 
It's been an interesting experience to be doing this, but it does make us feel that we are in touch with you all out there. And please stay in touch. Don't be a stranger. This is Colin Schindler saying thanks for listening. See you all next time on Football Ruin My Life. It's the first time the Bishop of Leicester's got a mention anyway on this bracket. Any bishop for that matter. I'm slightly alarmed about the idea that we're now going to have to film these things. I saw you go <laughs> deathly pale. <laughs> It keeps on your toes. Yeah. Sports Social Podcast Network.